The Bible has really come to be the set of lenses through which John views the world. John has ground these lenses on the words and the images and the the teachings and the perspective of earlier biblical authors so that when he looks at the world, he sees the world as they saw it. And and so that so John in Revelation is really doing biblical theology and he's learned to do this from Moses and the prophets and from Jesus and probably from his interaction with the other apostles. We want to learn that same perspective from the biblical authors. Welcome to the Blessed Podcast. I'm Nancy Guthrie, author of the newly released book, Blessed, Experiencing the Promise of the Book of Revelation. The book of Revelation begins and ends with the promise. It's the promise to those who hear and keep what is written in it. And the promise is that they will be blessed. And I don't know about you, but I want that blessing. And so that means we've got to hear what this book has to say, and then figure out what it's going to mean to live in light of that. On this podcast, I'm having conversations with people who can help us to hear it and to understand its message and to help us reckon with what it's going to mean for us to live in light of that message. My guest today is James Hamilton, goes by Jim, who is professor of biblical theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. So, Jim, thank you so much for being willing to help us as we want to learn more about Revelation. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I first became familiar with Dr. Hamilton when I read his book, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. I mean, that title itself, I was like, I've got to understand that. It was one of the biggest books I think I had ever bought at the time. Uh, but I just loved how it worked its way through the Bible, showing salvation, not just salvation on its own, but that salvation always actually comes through judgment. So we'll get back to talking about that a little bit more as we go along. Uh, but uh One reason I wanted to talk to Dr. Hamilton is he wrote the commentary on the book of Revelation called Revelation, The Spirit Speaks to the Churches in Crossways Preaching the Word Commentary Series. He's written a number of other books as well. Uh, His newest book is called Typology, Understanding the Bible's Promised-Shaped Patterns, How Old Testament Expectations Are Fulfilled in Christ. It's quite a title. I love this. Okay. And when I saw that book, I thought to myself, okay, these promised shape patterns, where is it they come to their climax? Well, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. But then, where are all of these patterns that began in the Old Testament? Where do they find their resolution? Mm Mm-hmm. The book of Revelation. Amen. <laughs> so maybe we should begin, Jim, by but you just telling us what you mean by that big long title and that whole idea of promised shaped patterns. What do you mean? So what I'm what I have in mind is the way that when God's word comes to people in the form of a promise, it then begins to shape their expectations. So we can go all the way back to the very first one, which is actually in a word of judgment. So this is Genesis three fifteen, which is, is a word of judgment that also hints at salvation. As the Lord actually says in words of judgment over the serpent, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And so for the man and the woman, who at that point I think are expecting to die, the, the, the prohibition is in the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Well, now that God has spoken this word of judgment to the serpent, which includes enmity between the serpent and the woman and between his seed and her seed, now she's thinking, because of those words from God, okay, I'm going to be at enmity with this this evil beast that has led me into sin. And that means I'm going to be on God's side. And it also means I get to go on living so that the the, in the words of promise, there is revelation that shapes her expectation about the future. And she begins to now expect enmity between herself and the serpent and enmity between her offspring and the offspring of the serpent. And then as the narratives continue to unfold, we get more information about what this is going to look like, but it's information that's filtered through the words of promise so that the promises actually shape the patterns and they shape the the biblical author's interpretations of the patterns. And really, that promise, I mean, I we really can't understand the rest of the Bible unless we understand that promise and begin looking for that fulfillment. Yeah, amen. Amen. So right away, you know, in Genesis 4, 11, the, the Lord says the same words to Cain that he had spoken to the serpent. He said to the serpent in Genesis 3, 14, uh, cursed are you, and then he says to Cain in Genesis four eleven, cursed are you, after Cain has killed Abel. And what that does is it is it identifies for us people who act like the serpent as the seed of the serpent. And this leads to John, of course, in 1 John 3, saying that Cain was of the evil one. He was seed of the serpent. And so the, the words of promise are, I think, shaping the way that, that the author of Genesis, I would take this to be Moses, uh, the words of promise in Genesis 3.15 are shaping what Moses chooses to include in Genesis 4. So he's careful to include this statement in Genesis 4.11 that identifies Cain with the serpent uh, because he's informed by uh, the promise of Genesis 3.15. Well, as I think about what that means for someone who's getting ready to study the book of Revelation, mm. I think, first of all, I mean, we could trace that all the way through the Bible, and that would be fun for us to do, but yes. I want to try to do this with several of these promise-shaped patterns in a short time. So sure. let's let's jump ahead. I, I think we have to stop at the cross, because mm. at the cross, that's where, you know, Paul would say, that's where, um, you know, the record of our sins mm. was nailed, and, mm-hmm. and that's where Jesus defeated the powers of darkness mm-hmm. in his death and resurrection. Indeed. But really, it's not until Revelation that that pattern, that final and ultimate defeat, hmm. uh, and actually revelation when it refers to Satan, it calls him that ancient serpent. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about how understanding what we read in Revelation about the final destruction of that mm-hmm. ancient serpent. How yes. does it help us to see that in light of the whole story that began back there in Genesis? 3? Yes. So actually, you know, in Revelation 12, uh, John describes this sign that he sees in heaven. So by calling it a sign, he's telling us that this is symbolic material. And he sees this woman, and she's clothed with the sun 
and the moon and under her and on her head are a crown of 12 stars. And I think this is meant to recall uh, Joseph's dream where um, the sun and the moon and the stars are bowing down to him. So there are these patterns of expectation of the child of promise who's going to be raised up to deliver the Lord's people as Joseph does in Genesis. And then this dragon is there ready to eat this child, devour it as soon as it's born. But the child is caught up uh, to God and to his throne. And the child in Revelation 12, 5, is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So this is Psalm 2, which I think is identifying the child as the Messiah. And then um, after this, which I think what happens there when the child is caught up to God in heaven, it's like we skip from the birth of Jesus to the ascension of Jesus, assuming uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then, as it were, in response to the career of the Lord Jesus on earth, Um, There's this war in heaven, and Satan is thrown out of heaven. And it's interesting that prior to this, prior to the cross of Christ, you have these scenes in the Old Testament where Satan comes as the accuser against the Lord's people, like Job chapter 1, chapters 1 and 2, and also in Zechariah 3, or maybe it's 4, I'd have to check, but uh, Satan is standing there as the accuser. And, and he's accusing Joshua the high priest, and uh, he's rebuked on that occasion, but he's there in the heavenly court. Well, now, in Revelation 12.10, after Satan is cast out of heaven, I think because of the cross work of the Lord Jesus, um, John writes, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And I think this means that Satan has no more standing in the heavenly court to accuse the people of God. You know, Jim, I think this is a good place to talk about the fact that Revelation, you know, we so often think about it as being all about the future, Mm -hmm. especially some of these very vivid pictures. Mm -hmm. But I think what you've just shown is, first of all, it it showed us something from the very beginning of redemptive history as that covenant community, in a sense, gives birth Mm -hmm. to the Messiah and Uh, We see the Messiah's life, death, and resurrection, and that it's telling us there the accuser's been thrown out, right? Right. So that's something that's not, that's not future. That happened in the death, but most significantly in the resurrection Mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ, and he entered into heaven, and now no longer can Satan accuse us because Jesus has dealt with our sin and guilt on the cross. Yes. Yes. All right. Amen. So go on. So what's going to happen though with so this then, serpent? Right after that, um, you know, the, the dragon he goes after the woman, and she's delivered, and she's delivered in ways that are reminiscent of Old Testament deliverances. You know, so that the, the dragon, for instance, in um, uh, verse fourteen. Uh, He's going after this woman, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. And so I think what what John is, is doing here is he's recalling the way that in Exodus 19, when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt and he got them to Mount Sinai, he says to them, right before he makes the kingdom of priests, holy nation statement, he says, I believe it's Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen how I bore you on the wings of an eagle to myself. And then Isaiah picks that up and says in Isaiah 40, 31, that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength and they will mount up with the wings of an eagle. Uh, and, and so I think that, that John is saying, now that Christ has conquered, the Lord is still delivering his people 
uh, on the wings of an eagle the way that he did the, at the Exodus and the way Isaiah prophesied that he would at the new Exodus. And then right after that, the dragon, he, he causes this flood uh, in verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. And so uh, the earth comes to the help of the woman and opens his mouth and swallows the river. And so it's, it's as though Satan is trying to bring judgment upon his enemies the way that God has brought judgment on his enemies, and God will not allow Satan to accomplish those purposes. And then finally in verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her seed. So it's like he's attempted uh, to devour the singular seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus, and he's unable to accomplish that purpose. So he goes off to make war on the rest of the seed of the woman. And we're told in Revelation 12, 17, that the rest of the seed of the woman are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So this is Christians. I mean, this speaks to our world right now today. Indeed. As you and I are having this conversation, we mm. were praying about a situation in the world where mm. we know that our brothers and sisters yes. in Christ, we could, we, you know, we, we read, we look at the news and we yes. see the, the reports through a very uh, human, earthbound mm-hmm. view. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, we could look at Yes. What's happening through the lens of revelation, mm-hmm. couldn't we? Sure. And because we, we see th- there is a greater evil underneath yes, yes. what we are There's seeing. There's ongoing enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's not over. Right. And our understanding has been shaped by those words of promises again. What do you mean by that? Well, so the, the, the promises have shaped the patterns that the biblical authors have written into their accounts. And then as we are informed by the promises and the patterns... Our understanding of what we are experiencing and what we're seeing in the world is likewise shaped by both the promises and the dynamic relationship between the promises and the patterns. Well, the promise was the crushing of the head. Meant by that, the evil Mm. that infiltrated that original garden will one day be gone for good. And we're going to enter into a new garden. Yes. We read in Revelation 21, nothing evil will ever enter it. Yes. Which when I read that line, I don't know about you, but I, I just think he's thinking about the original mm. garden. Mm-hmm. He's about to tell us about this no new... No serpent's going to come in and yeah, tempt us. Nothing evil is ever yep. going to enter into this garden and sully it like mm-hmm. it did before. Amen. Yeah, I, Sure. So we see in Revelation that there will be a lot of ongoing enmity between the serpent and the and his seed and the seed of the woman. And one outworking of that enmity is the way that in Revelation 13, uh, these people who refuse to take the mark of the beast, um, it's granted to the beast to cause them to be slain. And then at the beginning of Revelation 20, those people who were slain for refusing to take the mark of the beast, they, they faithfully endured under persecution. And in the terms of Revelation 12, 11, they loved not their lives even unto death. Um, those people are going to be raised from the dead. So Satan does not ultimately conquer them. They suffer, and then they're rewarded with the resurrection. And then Satan himself, at the end of Revelation 20, is thrown into the lake of fire, uh, where the beast and the false prophet already were. And then we have a huge sense of... (sighs) Yes, hallelujah. Right? Yes, the enemy is finally defeated. It's dealt with. And then we turn the page. Hmm where we read about this new heaven and this new earth, this new garden, this new temple, this new city and community. Mm-hmm. And there we read that nothing 
evil will ever enter into mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And surely there, uh, John is thinking about that original garden. Yes. Where that promise was first given that evil would be dealt with. And yes. we don't have to worry about evil ever entering into this, what I'd call Eden 2.0, right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> this new garden. And, and what's presented to us here in Revelation 21 and 22 is also informed by the garden and the temple and the tabernacle, you know, because uh, the city is this perfect cube. And I think that this is meant to indicate that the city represents what the Holy of Holies represented, so that what we're really getting is a cosmic temple and I would argue with many others, um, G.K. Beale has a great book on this called The Temple and the Church's Mission. Uh, I would understand that that Moses intended to communicate a relationship between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle as he narrates the, the making of Eden and then the instructions and the building of the tabernacle. Moses set this up so that his readers would see points of contact between these things. And this informs not only our understanding of the world that we live in, this is A temple is a place where God is present, God is worshipped, God is served, God is known, and he's with his people. And that's what the world was made to be, a place where God is present, served, worshipped, known, with his people. And because sin has defiled the temple by our sin, we've, we've brought about a separation between ourselves and God, and the Bible is telling us that that separation is one day going to be brought to an end, and that the cosmic temple will be re- renewed and purified, and God's original purposes for creation will be realized in the new heavens and new earth, which are the, the fulfillment of uh, the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, the land of Israel, and the church. All of these things, aren't they, are, they are patterns yes. that are, are showing us something about uh, why the world is the way it is, and how God is dealing with the way the world is. In in your new book, I think you work your way through maybe 10, 9 or 10 of these patterns. Right. So I'll throw out one. Sure. All right, creation. Yeah, so we were just talking about this with uh, the world being made as a cosmic temple. It's defiled by sin, but God reinstitutes the project through the tabernacle and the temple and the promise of land. Then the church becomes the new temple and the new creation. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then he also says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new creation has come. It's on the interior of our lives. It's beginning right there. Yes. And then John depicts this being fulfilled. Obviously, that part is through Christ. And then John depicts it fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. And it's so beautiful. I mean, it's so clear, isn't it? We read in Revelation, I mean, in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we turn to Revelation 21, and I saw coming down out of heaven a new mm-hmm. heaven and a new earth. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, the righteous sufferer. Yes. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah. So all through the Old Testament, we have these figures who they, they, are, they are obedient to the Lord. It starts really with Abel. The Lord has regard for Abel's sacrifice, and then Cain murders him. And it's enmity between the seed of the woman and seed of the serpent. And then we have Isaac, who's being mocked by Ishmael. And then we have, now Jacob is not necessarily righteous, <laughs> but Esau wants to kill him, and Jacob is clearly the Lord's chosen. And then we have Joseph. We don't read of any sins that Joseph committed, uh, but his brothers want to kill him, and then they sell him into slavery. And then the Lord raises up Moses, and the people of Israel reject him and persecute him and want to stone him at various points. And then we have um, 
a figure like David, mm-hmm. the, the prophet Samuel anoints him to be king. Saul starts trying to kill him and he's chasing him around the wilderness. And these patterns all build toward the prophets themselves who are also righteous sufferers. Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all these guys, they're faithful to the Lord. They're rejected by uh, the establishment in Israel and, and so forth. And that whole pattern is, it, it culminates in Christ. It comes to its fulfillment in Christ. And in the book of Revelation, there are significant points of contact between, for instance, Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, who has conquered. And then John turns, this is Revelation 5, John turns and sees the lamb standing as though slain. And there there are points of contact between that and Isaiah 53, where he grew up before us as a root out of dry ground. And that root in Isaiah 53 is the uh, the shoot that will come from the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11. And then in Isaiah 53, we also have reference to this figure who is a lamb, who is uh, led uh, to its shearers and is silent. And so this, this uh, conquest through defeat, mm-hmm. uh, the, the cross work of the Lord Jesus, whereby uh, the glorious defeat of the cross is his moment of triumph. And, and, and results in him being the lamb standing as though slain, and then, and then creates a situation where his followers are to conquer in the same way that he conquered. That seems to me to be a really important message mm-hmm. of Revelation. When you, when you get, I think it's in chapter 11, mm-hmm. where it's, ta- it's, it's talking about um, these witnesses, yes. and it says that they will be trampled. Yes. I mean... <laughs> It's a gulp to read, right? Mm. Really, I think if you're looking for a Christian life Mm. in which somehow Jesus is a tool to make your life easier, maybe Mm. Revelation isn't the book for you. (laughs) Because um, Revelation's message is you should expect Mm. that uh, staying faithful to Jesus Christ Yeah. It's it's going to look like defeat mm-hmm. to the world. It's mm-hmm. going to it's not going to look like victory to the world. And this is why we need this divine word, divine perspective from heaven, mm. to help us understand that this what we can see in this world is not all that there is, mm-hmm. and that in fact it's going to look like glorious victory. Amen. But there in Revelation eleven, you've got this picture of uh, you should expect to suffer. There'll be tra- you'll be trampled by mm-hmm, it and mm-hmm. and what's fascinating to me in that passage is the way that john describes what's going to happen seems very purposefully to sound like exactly what happened to jesus mm-hmm. they die and then they're given the breath of life yes after so three days see, yeah yes. after three days yes. right so you see okay yeah, death but you also see just as you are going to share in mm. his suffering mm-hmm. you will share in his resurrection amen. which is such good news to us as amen. believers amen amen all right, we didn't say that one very quickly. Let's just uh, let's try. Let's do uh, king and kingdom. Sure. Um, because certainly, when we get to Revelation, we see a king has arrived. But where does that come from? Well, so I would argue that over God's cosmic temple, He installs a king priest in Adam. And Adam is not directly called a king, but he's given dominion. And he's not directly called a priest, but he's to work and keep the garden in the way that the Levites were to work and keep the tabernacle. And so I would argue that Adam is a royal priest in the Garden of Eden. And then um, and then we're given this figure of Melchizedek, who is a royal priest in Genesis 14. And then the nation of Israel 
is designated as a royal priest. You'll be a kingdom of priests, exactly. they're told, when they come out of the Exodus. That's exactly right. And then, though David is not called a priest, it's interesting that the only people to be anointed in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, the only people to be anointed are the priests. So that when the prophet Samuel is instructed to go anoint the king, people are naturally going to think of the priests because the only people we anoint, according to the Pentateuch, are the priests. And now we're going to anoint a king, and this is associating the king with the priesthood, I think. And then as you continue through the Old Testament, uh, there are various ways in which David and others uh, take up priestly roles. And this builds, I think, to Psalm 110, where the future king from David, David's line is told that he will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then in the New Testament, and specifically in Revelation, you have Jesus in Revelation 1. When John sees him in Revelation 1, he is clearly the reigning king, and he's going to be identified at the end of the book as the king of kings, but he's also clothed like the high priest of Israel. And and John writes that Jesus in Revelation 1.6 made us a kingdom priests to his God. And so it's as though this whole theme of king, uh, royal priesthood comes to its fulfillment in Christ, who then enables him, his people to be like him in that they are royal priests. So again, in Revelation 5.10, uh, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So uh, Christ reigns as the royal priest, and his people administer his reign as royal priests. You know, one thing that's coming clear to me as you talk, Jim, is, and it was so clear to me as I worked on Revelation too, mm. is that this is not a book that we can understand in isolation. Right. All of these pictures and images. We can't simply import, me when we read about a kingdom or mm. a priest, or, we can't import meaning into those words right. simply from our life experience and what we look at around us. Mm-hmm. Here is John on the island of Patmos, and he has been um, marinating in the Old Testament mm-hmm. his whole life. Mm-hmm. He's been reading Moses and the Prophets. And in a sense, when we read the book of Revelation, one reason perhaps all of these patterns come through is he's so marinated. Mm-hmm. Those so make up his understanding mm-hmm. of what God is doing in the world that these are the words he speaks. So, right. so John doesn't so much quote the Old Testament as it, it just seems to be kind of the fabric, right? right? And so over and over again, we're hearing allusions. He'll use a little phrase or mm-hmm. a little descriptor or an image and what's interesting, Jim, is it seems to me that so many people who approach Revelation, they see those things and they want to look out into mm. the world today. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me in Revelation, our instinct always has to be, and you're showing us this, is, well, we've got, where did this come from? Amen. What, what had John so filled his mind with mm-hmm. in the Old Testament that would cause him to use an image like locusts right right right. or a scroll or any of these kinds of things Mm -hmm. maybe you can speak to that a little bit sure so i would i would define biblical theology as the attempt to understand and embrace the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors and what you're describing john has done is exactly what i'm talking about where the bible has really come to be the set of lenses through which john views the world John has ground these lenses 
on the words and the images and the the teachings and the perspective of earlier biblical authors so that when he looks at the world he sees the world as they saw it and and so that so John I would argue in revelation is really doing biblical theology and he's learned to do this from Moses and the prophets and from Jesus and probably from his interaction with the other apostles, Paul and Peter and, and the rest. You know, we're not inspired by the Holy Spirit and we were not designated by the Lord Jesus as apostles, but we want to learn that same perspective from the biblical author so that when we, when we read the Bible, what we're trying to do is say, What's the perspective from which all this was written? And how did what informs this perspective? And the answer to that, as you said, is earlier scripture. And so we want to we want to marinate ourselves in that. And then we want to try to figure out how John is looking at the world and then look at the world that way. Do you have any practical advice for someone? They're coming to Revelation. It's tough going because mm-hmm. they're having you know a, a lot to process. Mm-hmm. But they want to understand it right. in the way that you're talking about. Maybe they don't have as much ingrained Old Testament understanding, certainly as John had yes. or or as you had. Is there any practical way they can kind of beef up or as they work through Revelation? What can help them see those things? I think the most important thing that any of us can do is just read the Bible a lot. Oh, and if we, you know, if we're in a situation where maybe we don't have lots of time to read, we have all these ways today to listen to the Bible. You know, if you have the ESV app on your phone, you can touch the screen and this little speaker will come up and you can touch that speaker and hit play and David Cochran Heath will start reading the Bible to you. It's amazing that, that the, the ways that we can access the scriptures today. So I think the more thoroughly acquainted we are with the whole Bible, and, and then when we read Revelation, if I often in, encourage people to send up their biblical awareness antennae so that you really kind of turn on your, your, your biblical um, knowledge apparatus and employ that as you think about what you're reading. And often I think people just don't do that. It's like they, they, they're very familiar with earlier scripture, but they don't reflect on how, like for instance, that woman in Revelation 12 who's who's clothed with the, the sun and the moon, and she has the 12 stars under her feet. We don't stop and think, where do I see where 12? Where have I heard this yeah, before? Where, where do I get that imagery before? Yeah. And then, you know, in Revelation 10, there's this massive angel with these pillars of fire and cloud for his legs. Hmm, where have I heard that before? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and so we should think, okay, why would John use imagery from Israel being led through the wilderness when he talks about this angel? Well, I would propose... That, that John is saying that Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb and that through the revelation that he's providing, God is going to lead his people through the wilderness to the, to the new and better Jerusalem in the new heavens and new earth in the same way that he led his people through the 40 years in the wilderness. And, and that imagery is, is informing how we're to understand what John is doing as he eats the scroll and prophesies. So your advice was read the Bible a lot. Yes, that's the I agree. Thing. Can I add something to yes. that? And I think it's what you've demonstrated really in all of your books and, and particularly in this new book, Typology, Understanding the Bible's Promise-Shaped Patterns, How Old Testament Expectations Are Fulfilled in Christ. If we go to that reading hmm. with already a sense of some of these major themes or patterns mm-hmm. or types that we can expect to see 
wherever we are in the scripture. Yes. That then when we're attuned to that, when we see one of those images jump up, it guides us, yes. I think, into the Holy Spirit intended yes. meaning yes. for the text. Right. And so that and so that a, a basic skill, mm-hmm. biblical literacy skill, mm-hmm. I didn't grow up with. I don't know if you grew up understanding these kinds of things, but you know, I didn't grow up with that. So right. I think I think for a lot of us, it's a skill we have to develop, mm-hmm. a knowledge base we have to develop of mm-hmm. understanding um, these major themes. So, or, or you call them patterns in this book. And so, for example, the, the patterns you have in the book, I, I'll, I'll try to say some of them. Sure. I, would, I might not get them all correct. You've got creation. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that. The righteous sufferer. Um, and then the, the threefold office, uh, mm. king, right. priest, prophet, I think you had Exodus, mm-hmm. New Exodus in mm-hmm. there, maybe right. what you called Levitical, yes. basically the, the Leviticus presentation of sacrifice. And right. then in a, a very important, I think, theme we see beginning end of the Bible, marriage. Yes. So whenever, at temple, we talked to mm-hmm. some about that. So whenever we would see one of those themes, that sh- should kind of make us. Yes. Huh. And, and I think it's the same in Revelation, yes. don't you? Because these themes are pervasive mm-hmm. or these this imagery mm-hmm. i think especially when we get to revelation 21 yes i mean it is a typologist dream right there i think right because we start out with this new creation mm-hmm. and it is presented as a bride mm-hmm. so that should make us go marriage right and then there's a city, and we mm-hmm. think about all the cities mm-hmm. in the Bible, mm-hmm. and then here's a new Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And then we get to this the scope of it being a perfect cube. Mm-hmm. And if we're familiar with temple imagery, then we think temple, mm-hmm. and then we think garden. So anyway, Amen. I think all of those things really serve us well throughout the whole of the Bible, but particularly when we get to Revelation. No doubt, no doubt. I should have added another, another practical okay. step, which is that people can read a book like Blessed, Hallelujah. They, they should definitely do that. And, and you know, the way that a lot of this imagery functions is a lot, it's similar to the way that, say, the American flag functions. And, and the more that we know about, say, American history or even the, um, uh, the lady Betsy Ross who stitched the flag or the symbolism of the stars and stripes, the more we will appreciate it when we see the flag being waved or when we hear someone reference the red, white, and blue. These things will resonate with us a lot more. And this is the way that the symbolism and the imagery and the patterns of the Bible are intended to work. The more familiar we are with the background and the history of these things, the more the symbol will speak to us when we encounter it. Well, our time is about up. But because I promised earlier and because I do, I, I did love your book, uh, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. Will you please tell us briefly how Revelation shows us the beautiful culmination mm. of salvation through judgment that right. begins at the very beginning of the Bible? Yes. So uh, the big... The big, the big salvation through judgment in all the New Testament is the way that judgment fell on Christ, and through that, his people can be saved. And that note is sounded all through the book of Revelation. But from, from the beginning of the book where John says, uh, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, Revelation 1.5, uh, all through uh, Revelation chapter 5, the lamb standing as though slain, 
to the end where they're saying salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Salvation is, is possible because judgment fell on the Lamb. But then also, through the book, what we're really seeing is God judge his enemies repeatedly. And as God judges his enemies, he, he spares his people from that judgment. He saves his people through the judgment of their enemies so that in Revelation 7, when the servants of God are sealed, that seal protects them from the wrath that falls when the trumpets are blown. And then also, um, as, as we read the book of Revelation, we also see the serpent trying to be, bring judgment upon his enemies, but he's ineffective. So I think that the, the, the number of the beast is like, it's like this false imitation, this fake, cheap imitation of God's sealing of his saints. And then the beast, he tries to bring wrath upon the servants of God, but he can't keep them dead. God is going to raise them from the dead. And so the book is telling us that God accomplishes salvation through judgment, and Satan tries to imitate God, but he fails on point after point. And this this also is exalting the Lord and, and causing us to seek to be faithful unto death, confident that he'll raise us from the dead. I would say that the whole book, the whole book of Revelation has the shape, mm-hmm. in a sense, of salvation through judgment, Amen. right? I mean, the, we begin hearing about the judgment that's coming on us even now mm-hmm. in this time in yes. between his first coming and his second through the seals and right. the trumpets. It gets heavier in the bowls, and then we get into 17, 18, 19. There's the judgment, mm-hmm. the final judgment, right. and evil is done with for good. But it's that judgment that has cleansed the world mm. so that the new creation yes. can come in. Amen. And all of these people we see coming into this city, this garden, mm-hmm. this temple in Revelation 21 and 22, they are people who have been, as you talked about, sealed, yes. uh, marked for protection. It's not that um, they were uh, that they were somehow out of the scene hmm. when judgment fell. Right. It's that they were protected in judgment, just like Noah was protected yes. in judgment, just like those people of Israel who put blood on the right. on their door right. were protected when judgment yes. came down. Yes. And, and then at the Red Sea, you know, they passed yes. through the waters that are going to close over the army of Pharaoh. So yes. Revelation just shows us such a beautiful picture of that. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much. We really do want to hear what is in Revelation. Mm-hmm so that we can keep it. And Mm -hmm. when I think about these patterns that you've been talking about, um, perhaps one way we keep these is we think through each of them and Mm. we say, what is it going to mean for me to be in this kingdom? Mm. What is it going to mean for me to be in this new creation Mm -hmm. as it uh, begins to work its way in my life? Mm even now. Uh, What's my relationship to this lamb? Mm -hmm. And according to Revelation, am I going to be hiding from him Hmm. or am I going to be protected by him? Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for being willing to talk with us about Revelation. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been Blessed, a Crossway podcast hosted by Nancy Guthrie, the author of Blessed, Experiencing the Promise of the Book of Revelation. I hope you'll join me for the next episode of Blessed. Blessed.